friends, <clears throat> fellow Dhamma-farers, O children of the Noble Ones, and most excellent medium-sized beings, I sit before you tonight surrounded by pumpkins. <laughs> and I had the thought just now, as this was pointed out to me by one of my colleagues, that it might have a slight effect on the sort of gravitas that I bring to, to the talk. <laughs> but I actually feel like being surrounded by pumpkins is kind of perfect for me. <laughs> and you all are also surrounded by pumpkins. <laughs> and there's this um, opportunity these, these few days here to... Uh, you really get into uh, contact at the nose door, which is not so much a part of things in the hall that often. And Winnie was talking about this the other day, and they get more and more fragrant as uh, days go on. <laughs> and at a certain point, this becomes a you know, staff or someone takes notice of this, and they, they do go out of the hall. <laughs> but uh, yes, anyway. I was looking over these notes and I, I had this thought, oh, maybe I just gave this talk a week or two ago. <laughs> you know? So there's a chance that that's true. And um, you know, I want you to forgive me in advance. And um, there's bound to be at least one new sentence in here, um, something I haven't said before. And that's the, the one you should hear. A couple of nights ago, it was very clear, kind of rare to have a clear night this fall. It's been such a, a rainy, cloudy fall. Often in October and early November, we get very clear nights. And, and out here in the country, when it is clear, it can be quite dark if you're in the right spot. And I've been, uh, I, I love to look at the night sky. Some of you who've heard me speak before, I, know this about me. And uh, I've been uh, checking in when it's been clear over these weeks that I've been here this fall and, and I'm watching the progression of the seasons and I notice the winter constellations are just starting to rise. And uh, after the evening chanting around that time, I, I check and the Pleiades are coming up, one of my favorite gathering groupings of stars. And now directly overhead at around 9.30 after the chanting, um, if you know where to look, you can see the Andromeda galaxy, which is one of my favorite things to see in the night sky. It's, um, it's the most distant naked eye object in the, night, in the skies, in the night skies from here, from this planet. And it's... Um, two and a half million light years away from us. But it's really big. If you could see all of it, you can only see the, the center part, the brightest part. You have to draw a line between Cassiopeia and the great square in Pegasus. And if you know where to look and you don't look right at it, you can see this faint fuzzy patch. 
But if you could see all of it, it would be, it would take up a space in the sky, somewhere around five or six full moons worth of space. It's a big thing. It's made up of, of a trillion stars. And when we look at it, when we look at anything in the night sky, it's a time machine. We're seeing what it looked like two and a half million years ago. Might not even be there anymore. Maybe it went out somehow. <laughs> Apparently it's heading, the Milky Way galaxy and the Andromeda galaxy are, are heading on a collision course and will someday merge into a, an even bigger one. So we have this, this time machine, the closest star, you're seeing what it looked like more than four years ago. Even the sun, that's eight and a half minutes, the time it takes light to get to us. So if the sun goes out sometime tomorrow, it'll be a few minutes before we notice that. <laughs> then things will change. <laughs> quickly and dramatically. <laughs> I love the fact that you, to see the Andromeda galaxy, you can't look directly at it. There's a lot of things that maybe are best seen by looking a little bit not directly at them. Maybe there's something useful for us in how we approach our practice. Maybe we see some things best when we're not looking for them or we're looking not so directly at them, just a little to the side. This, uh, there's a quotation I love from Albert Einstein. He said, there are two ways to live your life. One as though nothing is a miracle, the other as though everything is a miracle. You look at the Andromeda galaxy, everything is a miracle to me. It opens my mind, it shifts my sensibilities in that way. We might think of going on retreat like this as, as undertaking a period of field work, research. We're studying the terrain of our own body and mind and heart and, and we're using this tool of mindfulness to, uh, to investigate that, to do this research. <clears throat> I remember a teacher once suggesting that we could approach our, our practice as though we were some kind of um, alien entity kind of pure intelligence, non-corporeal, that had the ability, with permission, of course, to inhabit, share the body and mind of one of these beings like us. And we're, we're checking it out, what's it like to have a body and a mind like that? So we don't have one. We're gonna research it and then report back to our, wherever we came from, our, our uh, whoever sent us out on the research. And so we're seeing what's it like, these weird animals that live, this particular group of them that lives on this planet and 
We're going to learn about them and report it back. Maybe that's actually what's going on. (laughs) Maybe we've just, we've gotten so involved and, and so fascinated that we've forgotten that we're just supposed to be doing some research here and we're, we're, we've taken on this identity. <laughs> you know, this is a report. This is what they call a sensation. Oh, this is, they call this a thought. This is an emotion. This is when they feel sadness. This is what it's like when they feel joy. We know a lot, you know, we have a lot of knowledge sometimes. We get very focused on knowledge and and we think we know a lot anyway. I think it was uh, J. Krishnamurti had as a book called Freedom from the Known. I think all that we know can be sometimes a problem for us. We think we we know what's true and real, and we think we know who we are and what we are. Bring a lot of that to to our practice, and it can get in our way. Is it possible that we can uh, step away from that a little bit sometimes? There's a quotation I often love to read. It's from a, a man who lived in Canada, born in... Uh, Holland named uh, Henry Nguyen, or Nguyen, I think it's pronounced. The spiritual life is a life in which we wait, actively, actively present to the moment, trusting that new things will happen to us, new things that are far beyond our own imagination, fantasy, or prediction. This indeed is a very radical stance toward life, in a world preoccupied with control. That short few lines there really captures something beautiful and essential in in describing our practice here, really. It's a great description of mindfulness practice. Can we uh, adopt this kind of relationship to our life to experience this. I love this active presence, waiting actively present. And, and it, can we find enough trust that allows us to meet each moment with this, uh, with what the teacher Suzuki Roshi called beginner's mind. Some teachers call it don't know mind. Don't know. I think if we think of our practice as a kind of research, then this, this don't know mind is essential. You know, the field work of meditation needs this. Really, any kind of research, the key is to uh, let go of all that we think we know, letting go of our preconceptions and our assumptions, and, or at least to bear them in mind see them and, and bear them in mind and know that they're there. 
and research requires an open mind or we'll just see what we're looking for. Suzuki Roshi put it really simply. He said, in the beginner's mind, there are many possibilities, but in the experts, there are few. This beginner's mind, really essential here. And so we undertake this fieldwork, which really is just the observation of nature. You know, we take it on as though our job in doing research is to is to fix it and make it be the way it's supposed to be. That's how we approach it. That's not not a good way to do research. Now I gotta I gotta fix it. Take it on in that way. We're just observing nature, getting intimate. It's radical intimacy with the nature of things in the body, in the world around us. Because that's what we see there, that's what we'll see. That's what this research reveals is that everything is just the unfolding of natural processes. And the more we open to and uh, understand and deepen our relationship to this, the more we're inclined to let go of uh, owning it, of trying to fix it. And there's this great relaxation and ease, this laying down of a burden, a weight that we may not have realized we were hauling around with us when we do this. And so this exploration of nature includes all aspects of ourselves. There's no part that's left out. If something's left out, then it's going to be incomplete. We have to see the whole thing. What we like and what we don't like. The beautiful and the not so beautiful. And the pleasant and the not so pleasant. We have to open to it all. And if, if there's something left out, then things will not be complete. It will not come to fulfillment. There's this implication and understanding here that we're not here to, to fix or gain control so that we only experience what we want to or what we like. That's not our job here. Because there's no freedom in that. We're after a different kind of freedom, kind of deep peace and deep abiding peace, a kind of freedom or happiness that's not dependent on it being any particular way. These are some words from a book called The Teachings of Don Juan by Carlos Castaneda. I first read these words, I think it's about 48 years ago now. Amazing to hear myself say that. (laughs) Getting old. But that book was so important to me when it first came out, when I first read it, it was in high school. Before you embark on any path, ask the question, does this path have a heart? If the answer is no, you will know it, and then you must choose another path. The trouble is nobody asks the question 
And when you finally realize that you have taken a path without a heart, the path is ready to kill you. At that point, very few of us can stop to deliberate and leave the path. For me, there is only the traveling on paths that have a heart, on any path that may have a heart. There I travel, and the only worthwhile challenge for me is to, is to traverse its full length. And there I travel, looking, looking breathlessly. Catches the same flavor of seeing life as a miracle. Seeing the universe as marvelous. And so then there's this possibility to look at it in this breathless way. It'll take your breath away sometimes. And I remember I wanted to feel that way, that I was somehow found, had found a path and could walk it breathlessly. It felt like that should be a possibility, must be a possibility. There must be some reality to that way of being in the world. I didn't feel like anyone was offering me that. Felt like I was being offered paths that were going to kill me. And so maybe we've come on retreat looking for a path with heart and maybe some of us feel like we've found one. And it can sound, maybe it uplifts and inspires the mind and heart to think of this, walking a path with heart looking breathlessly. But then we go through a day like today and it gets pretty long. <laughs> there's times when we might, one, might wonder, what am I doing here? What is this doing for me? You know, we're walking a path perhaps, but it's not going anywhere. You just turn around and walk back. <laughs> The heart isn't in the path in, in that way so much as it is in, in our heart as we walk it. Find the heart within our own heart. And so, you know, this is clear and obvious. We use this form of this retreat to keep things simple, to remove the doing and the momentum that keeps us running, that maybe keeps us walking on a path that has no heart. We just keep on walking it because the momentum is so strong. walking in a way that we never find the heart in the path, never actually show up. Maybe it keeps us from actually living fully. Find some sense of this, this uh, in these words from Henry David Thoreau. I went to the woods because I wished to live deliberately to front only the essential facts of life and see if I could not learn what, what it had to teach and not, when I came to die, discover that I had not lived. Those are powerful words also. And they point to a a very, a very real and I think tragic possibility that one might come to the end of one's life and discover that one had not actually lived. <clears throat> or that one had 
tried so hard to survive that one had missed out on living. We're not born to survive, but I think maybe we are born to live. And things get so simple and down to this, the bare bones of things on retreat. We spend our days, we sit and we walk. We do all the other things, we eat, we use the toilet. All these things, that's a life, right? That's what makes up a life. We just do all these things, they're mundane, they're simple, there's nothing special in any of it. It's so not special, except this quality of mindful awareness. We bring that to bear, that changes everything. That brings forward this possibility that it's a miracle. And when we combine mindful awareness with the the slower pace, the simplicity of time on retreat, then we have this chance to live deliberately, to live with that kind of care, to touch it with that soft touch. And Thoreau said, I went to the woods because I wished to live deliberately. Deliberately, we have that possibility. And we start opening to a level of understanding to a reality or kind of truth that's below our everyday eye and below all of our ideas and concepts and beliefs. And so then we have this chance to front the essential facts of life. Or I said, I wanted to see if I could learn what it had to teach. It has a lot to teach us if we actually pay attention life. So there's this critical understanding that's uh, implied in all of this that uh, we need to bear in mind. From the perspective of meditation, all experiences are equal. Because what we're interested in are the characteristics or qualities or the um, essential facts that apply to all things. And because there's nothing in experience we cannot be mindful of, and there's nothing that cannot serve as a vehicle for insight, we're golden here. It doesn't matter what's happening. It never matters in terms of this possibility to open to the truth of things. There's nothing in our experience that is outside the scope of our practice. I do hope you're hearing this because we put a lot of stuff outside. We set a lot of stuff outside. Stuff we need to get rid of or not look at so we can practice. Be careful of this tendency. The practice is inclusive, never exclusive. And along with this comes this, comes one of the hardest things for us to learn in meditation. It's really difficult to really learn this. We see it over and over and then we'll see, oh, gotta learn this once more. 
that our practice is not about having certain kinds of experiences, attaining certain kinds of special states. It's not what we're doing here. Sometimes we have cool experiences. We do abide for a while in something we might say is, is special. And, it, and it, it's, it is cool. And it can, you know, bolster our faith and, and bring energy and interest. And, and they're nice to have once in a while. And if you're like me, you're sitting out there saying, well, I've never had one of those. <laughs> I want one of those. Even if it's not the point, I still want it. <laughs> but if our, if our happiness, our freedom, our, our okayness is somehow based on having certain kinds of experiences or in achieving special states, then we're not going to ever find real freedom because none of these things are going to last. States don't last. Conditions are always changing, and when condition cha- conditions change, those things will fade and fade away. They'll change and go away. And then where are we? Back where we started, looking, well, I gotta get it back or get a new one. There's no real freedom there. So the practice isn't about gaining some kind of control. That earlier quotation, a world preoccupied with control. We come into practice with this preoccupation. When I get, I think meditation is going to give us this control. We only get to experience what we want to. What we're doing here is coming into alignment with the truth of things, into harmony with that. We're not here to get something we don't have, some special experience or state. We're not here to go anywhere other than where we are right now in every moment, right now. You're right where you're supposed to be right now. And that's always true. We hear the word insight a lot around places like this. And this is the Insight Meditation Society and I was wondering, why do they choose the word society? <laughs> like I feel kind of, all my colleagues look like they're either in samadhi or asleep, so I can't ask them. <laughs> but why? I have to ask Joseph. Why do they pick society? Maybe it was, you know, a long time ago, it sounded good. There once was a letter addressed to the Instant Meditation Society. <laughs> That'd be nice to have some instant meditation. It's like a, a packet and you add a little water. <laughs> instant. <clears throat> We're doing insight meditation here. Mostly. I mean, yeah, we're getting up to all kinds of stuff and maybe we're emphasizing metta, but the main thrust is this insight comes no matter what. We're interested in insight. What do we mean by that? You know, it's a common enough word. There's a car called the insight. And I hear it, you know, people come into meetings and regularly say, oh, I had this insight. 
And what do we mean by that? I think the fact that it's so common and has a lot of different uh, meanings and understandings makes it kind of hard to pin it down in terms of, in the, in the context of, of meditation and what we're doing here. I took a, a cue from uh, Dara and looked it up in the dictionary. It can be useful. So there are two definitions of insight. What was it you looked up the other night? I forget. I don't <laughs> you looked something up and told us the dictionary definition. Hindrances. Was it, it was hindrances, yeah. So I looked up insight. Two definitions I want to share with you. The first one, the power or act of seeing into a situation or penetration into a situation. And the second one, the act or result of apprehending the inner nature of things or of seeing intuitively. They're great. Really a lot in those definitions. And they, they really point to our practice in a very... Uh, useful way, and and in terms of it seeing it as a kind of research also, the way I've been talking about it. You know, this this power act we of seeing into things, into the situations, into our experience, penetrating into that, below the surface appearances. You know, we are interested in this sense of apprehending the inner nature of things seeing, knowing, understanding in this intuitive kind of level, on that level. It's an intuitive understanding, an intuitive seeing that we're interested in. It's really what we're doing here. There's a great definition of insight in those, in the dictionary words. And and our experience of that, of this uh, intuitive seeing below the surface, the inner nature of things and so forth. Shows up at different ways, different times. You know, sometimes we're seeing into uh, certain aspects of, of what we might think of as our conditioning. These deep, deeply uh, entrenched, deeply um, held mental habits that are kind of woven into the way we look at things. <laughs> and they operate in our lives and we start to see that ways that we respond or, or don't and react or in certain kinds of situations. And we see, oh, that's, I see that. See what has led to that happening in my life and we gain some understanding. And so for example, maybe we start to see into fears that we feel have been operating in our lives a lot over the years. And, and we start to understand the conditioning and when and why they arise and the things that tend to trigger the fears and the stories that are associated with them. And we, we see into, into that or other aspects of our emotional world and start to uncover places where we feel numb or blocked or somehow unable to connect. And we, we see this our inner world in this way and and we understand some of the conditioning there and see how we get caught. And these understandings 
can start to open things up. There's more space in there. There can be more ease. They're important. They can be powerful. Insights in this way have, uh, are mostly have to do with what's personal. You could say our personal psychology, our personal lives, our emotional world that's, that's ours, not the same as others, and all of our personal history and the stories there, the stories we've told ourselves, stories we've been told. taken on as our own, and we start to see into this part of our life and mind, and we see um, we see what's happening in this way, and it can be powerful, and in many ways it's an essential part of our practice and of a healthy life, and, and these kinds of understandings can be a real avenue towards releasing places where we've been caught, and places where we're suffering, and find greater acceptance, greater ease, removal of struggle. Important and powerful. And then there's another aspect of insight that, that goes in a way to the very heart of uh, what we're doing here and what's possible here at least. And this touches on, on things that are more universal, less of that which is personal. It's insight that informs and is informed by the personal but ultimately it also transcends the personal because it touches on that which is common to all of us, no matter our individual lives and our personal histories and all the stories. So insight on this level apprehends the subtle inner nature of things from that dictionary definition. This is the insight of insight meditation, we could say, and it, it's directly related to the fact that we translate this word in Pali, vipassana, as insight, insight meditation. There's a book called In This Very Life. It's um, a collection of teachings that were transcribed from uh, teachings uh, from uh, great master Sayada Upandita. And in there, he, there's a reflection he, he has on the meaning of this word, vipassana, vipassana, this Pali word, that is really, I think, um, quite powerful and points, points to something useful for us in terms of uh, exploring a question of what is insight, what do we mean by insight, in terms of the meditation practices that we're doing here. The word vipassana has two parts, vi and pasana. Vi refers to various modes and pasana is seeing. Thus, one meaning of vipassana is seeing through various modes. These modes are those of impermanence, suffering, and absence of self. A more complete translation of vipassana then becomes seeing through modes through the modes of impermanence, suffering, and absence of self. So this insight meditation, vipassana meditation then, is this special and kind of specific way of seeing, special way of seeing really, 
seeing through these modes. And it's, it's a really uh, quite a radical shift from our usual perspective and our usual intention. Actually, we, we mostly try to not see in terms of these things. Maybe we've spent most of our lives doing our best to not look at these, these things, these characteristics that apply to all things. So we can think of this, we're seeing through, the, uh, through a meditative perspective, uh, with the mind of meditation, the mind of a meditator. It's like we put on those kinds of glasses This meditative mind then is interested in what we could think of as the, the essence of things, the, the bare facts. We want to get to the, the bare bones of it all. We want to take off all of the, the, the stuff on the surface and get down to, the, to brass tacks, we would say. So that's the universal, the stuff that's true about all things, that's common. It's true and characteristic of anything that arises. These fundamental truths, then what we're seeing, we're looking at um, an aspect of reality when we see these things. They're, They're always the truth. They're just a reflection of nature, you could say. It's not that they, they're sometimes true. (laughs) Like every once in a while it gets all impermanent. all in permanency now. <laughs> it's all unreliable. It wasn't, but now it is. It's all uncontrollable or coreless. It's always the case, <laughs> which is cool because then we can open to seeing in this way anytime. Very good. So even if we don't like what's going on, even if it's kind of not our, what we would choose, it's still good. Because these truths are, are, are apply, applicable anytime. And so we start to touch into this deep, intuitive kind of seeing, this special vipassana way, these modes, through these modes, And when there's a certain momentum in the practice, when mindfulness and the collectedness of mind, of samadhi, of, you could say, concentration, if we're careful how we use that word, when there's a certain level of continuity, it doesn't have to be that great, but pretty good. There's a certain momentum of that, and there's a certain kind of, um, at times, a kind of seclusion of mind and heart that comes when when uh, mindfulness and concentration come into a kind of balance with one another. So there's uh, stability of mind and clarity of vision, clarity of seeing. There are two factors of, of mind that, that uh, strengthen. Sally spoke about these a bit in, in the first uh, six weeks. I'll mention them just briefly. These factors of vitaka, vichara in Pali. They're, they're uh, called jhanic factors. 
They're, they're factors that characterize um, and support the unification of the mind. Sometimes they're called um, connecting and sustaining. They support and characterize this collectedness of mind. I've used this, this image before, but I'm going to do it again. So if you have your hands open and can see, I have my hand up in front of us, spread out with the fingers quite wide. You can hold your own hand up if you can't see mine, if you want to. And so, so then there's this connecting, each of the fingertips we're connecting with experience, but there are these, these spaces between them. It doesn't matter, it could be seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, sensing, thinking, emotioning. And so then the, the sustaining part is when I'm moving my fingers closer together and my thumbs, so they're getting closer and closer. And then there's that sense of some sustaining, so the connecting, the sustaining. And there's some little gaps, they're not perfect, but they're closer. And so then the mind settles into a degree of stability where it rests a little more easily, a little more firmly, a little more consistently on whatever the object of attention is in any moment, even if those objects are changing very quickly. They can, this, this connecting sustaining still applies even with quickly changing uh, objects. And when the mind uh, gets pulled away or lost in some aspect, it comes back a little more quickly. We, we come back. There's more sense of we're there more of the time. And, and when, it's, when that is happening, when the fingers come together, there's not so much room. The hindrances can't get in very easily in the, those little spaces. So we're secluded from them a bit. At times, quite secluded from them. They don't arise all the time. And and then we see with this vipassana mind through these modes of, of the uh, direct seeing or sensing or mm, a direct, almost cellular connection with uh, these characteristics of uh, anicca, dukkha, anatta, the impermanent, unreliable, uncontrollable or coreless uh, aspect that uh, applies to all things all conditioned, these marks of existence. So I want to put in a, a little disclaimer now as I'm talking about uh, these, these characteristics and how, we, how they might manifest and show up. It can sound kind of tidy and clear and clean and like we'd even know that we were, like we'd be able to tell when we're seeing, <laughs> seeing them. And that may not be, that's off, mostly not, the case. So bear in mind that we might not even know in moments that we're seeing in this way, because often we're looking over here and it's happening down and over here somewhere in another spot. And, and, and it's not so tidy and clean and, and clear. So as you sit out there and decide, well, I've never had that experience. Oh, I don't know that. Be, be a little careful with that because you just don't know. We don't know. But opening to impermanence happens uh, 
you know, sometimes quite obvious, but through meditation, we start to see it in, in more subtle, what we could think of as a more microscopic way, right within this experience of the body and mind and the very um, momentariness of that. And, and mindfulness of the body, then we see that our sense experience, that this experience of body, as we've been saying in so many different ways, is just this flow of, of sensations, this dance of the elements of hardness and softness and, and coolness and heat and tension and vibration and pressure. And we see it's just this change and there's nothing permanent in that. We sense it so directly. Or within that flow of, of sensations that characterize body, there's the movement of the breath. And we may be spending a lot of time with uh, this close uh, intimacy with the breath. And, and we might get so close to it that it's as though the awareness is resting right within that. Right, rubbing up right against it. And we see each one is unique and they're constantly changing. And maybe we get so close to the breath that we see subtle changes and movements within an in-breath, within an out-breath. And maybe the sense of it, the breath falls away and it's just this uh, flow of subtle movements and sensations. Or maybe we see impermanence manifesting in terms of thoughts and thinking and these fleeting pulses of energy, this nature of thoughts, the phenomena of a thought independent of its content, just the thingness of it. Not much thingness there, really. And the whole worlds get created and we live in them and then they fall away. We see how, how ephemeral and fleeting it is, this world of the mental fabrication there. And sometimes our perception of change becomes very, very fine and, and objects, we see them arising, whether it's sensations or mental activity or a combination, we see them arising and passing. And they, and they seem to be coming and going so quickly that the mindfulness doesn't seem to be able to keep up with it times. It's like, we, we can't catch it all. We can feel like the, the mindfulness is weak, but actually it's just our perception of change is so fine that the mindfulness can't always keep up with it. We have to step back and, and relax into the flow more. It feels like a stream and, and it seems like they're disappearing um, almost before they've fully come. They just come and they go. It can be almost a little dizzying sometimes when it's seems to be changing so quickly. Sometimes we start to see more just the ending of things, the, the, the part of, at times we see the beginning, sometimes we can't see the beginning or the ending, we only can see kind of the middle part, but it doesn't last very long, or sometimes we really attune to the, the endings of things. The mind perceives this as this just falling away, this dissolution of phenomena, Seems that before we see it, it's, it's gone. And then another one is gone, another one is gone. Concepts can be very indistinct. And the sense of the form of the body might become very um, distorted or just not be there at all. It's hard to say where something is happening. To see this dissolving, falling away. You can feel kind of a little um, 
disorienting at times, like like there's nowhere uh, stable to stand or abide, and can be difficult sometimes, a little bit, um, a little bit frightening maybe. And when we see change in this very fine way, and we're not seeing it constantly all day long, there are times when the mind opens in this way, maybe for short periods, and and this directly leads us to see the the unreliable nature, the dukkha nature of things. Because it's so related to this, uh, reflected in this flow of change. You know, there's on this direct sensate level, we see there's nothing in there that we can hold on to. It doesn't last. Nothing could be a, a source of lasting happiness in that because it doesn't last long enough. We feel like, well, I can't turn, I can't, you know, we're trying to latch on and it's gone. And and we see that even things we enjoy are passing away and there's no refuge there, seeing the dukkha nature of it. It can feel like something's gone wrong sometimes. We've gotten off track because there's no satisfaction even in things that normally we would have found to be satisfying because they, they don't last long enough. And so there's this unreliability there. There's a a vulnerability in that. It all seems so fragile. Sometimes it's hard to see this. We need to remember that opening to this unreliability, this dukkha is is kind of, we can't open to that and not feel the dukkha. (laughs) Not possible. It's not easy all the time. And so opening in these ways, then we we start to un, uh, directly touch into the the coreless or uncontrollable nature of things, anatta, the not-self. This is the most radical understanding, potentially the most liberating aspect of the Buddha's teachings. And, and we see this through this connection to the fact that it's this flow of cause causes. It's a causal flow. Things are are flowing on causes and conditions that come together, fall apart, come together. The moment as it has come to be right now is this this moment of these causes coming together and then they change and the next moment is not the same. See this in our experience, this flow of natural processes that, that just flow on and we're not in charge of it. It's not amenable to our will. Maybe we see it in terms of contact at the sense doors. We see there's contact and then maybe at the ear door, there's contact, sound that that arises. Like the sound of the bell. And then hearing consciousness arises. That's, that's where, that's the conditioning, the contact and the arising of the consciousness there. Maybe we start to connect to intention in terms of our bodily movements and we see the intention arises and the body moves in response. Sometimes the other morning and, and other times I I've suggested uh, taking a period of time. We'll start 
or we'll let go of doing anything at all. Let go of something that feels like a practice, something we're trying to do. Settle from being a, change from being a human doing to a human being for a little while. And, and if we sit without doing anything at all, one thing we notice is that everything still keeps happening. It doesn't stop. Mindfulness comes and goes. Thoughts, sensations, they come and go. They just are doing their thing. And let them do that. We don't have to do anything about it. We don't have to fix it, work on it. We can sit back, relax, let it do its thing. It's coming and going by itself. We see over and over, because we don't stop trying, that nothing is amenable to our will, right? We're trying to get it to do what it should do, (laughs) get these bodies and minds to do what they're supposed to do. Any, Any luck out there with that? Maybe once in a while a little bit, but mostly not. You know, let me have only pleasant feelings in the body. Let me only have pleasant mind states. That would be so great. If, if we could do that, we could just go home. Let me have no thoughts. So as we see this, and it's not a persuasion, we're not trying to persuade ourselves of a point of view. We, we see this and then we, we start to let go of latching onto it or holding onto it as, as mine, as me, as happening to me. We see it's just this flow, it's doing its own thing, it's doing its thing, just the nature. And see that this sense of, of self is a feeling that arises in relation to this flow of experience that when we cling, hold on to it, or identify with it, then this feeling arises then. You can see it arise. It's kind of fun to watch it arise. If we stay steady, then um, the practice just does its own, it, it does us. What's our job here? not to make anything happen. And through this process of connecting with these truths, directly sensing deeply into them, even though we might not see that happening, over time the, the, the factor of, uh, the enlightenment factor of equanimity starts to strengthen. We had a talk in the, in the first six weeks on the factors of awakening, there might be another one coming up. But this, this balance of mind, of equanimity, becomes really strong. And, and sometimes we open to a very um, deep kind of equanimity. What is it called? High equanimity. Or or equanimity regarding all formations. Sometimes it's called six-limbed equanimity because it arises at all six of the sense doors. It's kind of exquisite equipoise in the mind and heart. 
or nothing that arises can move the mind those times. It's said to be similar to the mind of a fully enlightened being. This kind of unshakability of heart and mind that we can taste in moments. Kind of exquisite balance. Great stillness and clarity in that. And this prepares the mind for this deeper letting go, this deeper unbinding and release. This is, this is the trajectory. We don't start there, but it's through this process of just um, showing up, meeting uh, the nature of things, simple and direct way. And it happens despite us, this understanding. So that's good news for me at least. It was up to us. Might not be such a hopeful prognosis here, but luckily it's not up to us. Let's sit quietly and let these words drift away. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.